0: Good morning, Peninsula. How are we today? Yeah, well, that was a little not too enthusiastic. <laughs> but last Sunday morning, we began a new sermon series for the winter. Um, every two years, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Publishing, Southern Baptist Press, uh, joined, they joined forces and they surveyed the evangelical church to give a temperature of where they are theologically. Christianity Today then wrote a summary article about that study pointing out four, five, six areas where the evangelical church seems to be drifting toward heresy. And I said, well, not on my watch. So let's take a look at those areas and see what we what we think and what the Bible says. And so this series is called Really? Do we really believe that? So this morning Um, this is the survey, it's not a question, the statement, you agree or disagree with this statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of the church said yes, God believes and and God accepts the worship of all religions. That was up from 42% two years ago. Now, the statement doesn't say all religions, but it certainly indicates there is a bent toward universalism, believing that there are ways to bypass Jesus and approach God on your own. Can we approach God and ignore Jesus? Does the sincerity of our faith trump Jesus? Is Jesus really the only way to God, or is he not? And so this morning, I want to explore two sides of this coin. First, what is universalism? Let's make sure we understand that. What's the biblical support for it or against it? And then, is Jesus really the only way to be saved? The other side of the the same question, really. So we'll start broad, and then we'll narrow our focus. Number one, then, what is universalism? I say, that's universalism. What does that mean? Well, simply stated, it's this, universalism believes that sooner or later, everybody's going to be saved. Doesn't matter. The older form of, of universalism began in about the second century when they said, well, there's this period of trouble and, and, and um, punishment, but eventually we'll, argue, we'll all get there. Today, however, universalism declares that, that all, all of us are saved, and it's just the preacher's job to let you know. It doesn't matter. So to support that conclusion, how do you believe the Bible and support that conclusion? Well, they go to several different places. John 12, verse 32, says, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Oh. 1 Corinthians 15, says, so in Christ will all be made alive. Oh, maybe everybody then. Philippians 2.11, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. First Timothy 2, God wants all people to be saved. So, do those texts really teach that everybody is ultimately going to, to be saved, to, to go to heaven? Well, John 12 says that the cross of Christ makes possible salvation of both Jews and Gentiles is what he's saying. But in verse 48 of the same chapter, he says, you know, if you don't accept that, you, you will have judgment if you reject that, the cross. In 1 Corinthians 15, it states that all who are in Christ will be raised, so is everybody in Christ? That's the key. Philippians 2 says, yes, all people will declare Jesus as Lord. Does that mean all people will declare Jesus as Savior? Well, there, there is a difference. And 1 Timothy 2 says that God's desire is that all be saved, but it's not a promise. It's not a declaration that all people will be saved. To be a universalist, that's kind of where you go with those texts. But you also have to ignore a bunch of Scripture. Some spoken by the Savior himself, John three thirty six. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That doesn't sound very universal. Matthew 25, verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And he uses the same word to describe both. And that word is eternal. So if the punishment is not eternal, then your life is not eternal. Same word. And then in the epistles, 2 Thessalonians 1, he will punish those who do not know God and, who, and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Yikes. The Bible paints a picture that everyone's either saved or lost. Anyone who dies without Christ as savior will be eternally condemned. Universalism certainly does not seem to be supported by the New New Testament. Universalism directly contradicts these texts. So yes, we can be intolerant and we can be exclusive, but we're just reading the New Testament. It's exclusive, it's intolerant. We're just following the savior, I think. So the second question is, number two, is Jesus really the only way to be saved? Is that really true? And here we come to the part where our world says, you are way too narrow. You're arrogant part of your, that's, that's just arrogance of your faith. Because people today, we put a high value on being inclusive. We want everybody to be right. In fact, we think that the only way to be wrong is to think that anyone, could ever be wrong about anything we're all just right we're all just on this scale so when it comes to religion we say all paths lead to God and there's no really right way the right way is to believe whatever you think is true really is that what the Bible says because if we listen to Jesus he he seems to leave no room for confusion in this matter and if that's what he teaches, I kind of got to follow him. John 14, 6, you know it. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm preaching to the choir somewhere. Some of you, some of you might not be back ever again either. So, you know, that's the way that... Jesus says the only pathway to God is through the Son. Peter, it seemed to be what Jesus taught in his his ministry. So Peter, in the the book of Acts, says, you know, Jesus was right, that's that's true. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter's taking the words of Jesus, he's now carrying them into this New Testament era, into the, into the era, uh, era of the church. And they sound strange in an, in an era of today with its tolerance and diversity, political correctness. Surely Peter didn't, mean what he, Peter didn't mean what he said, did he? Well, what did he say? He said, salvation is found in no one else. Rather exclusive. He says, because there is no other name by which we must be saved. That means you cannot cry out to somebody else for salvation, whether his name is Muhammad or Confucius or Krishna or Buddha, doesn't matter. He says no one else but Jesus, that's what the text says. It's Jesus only and only Jesus. He is the only savior God has. And only through faith in him do you escape the destruction. Paul says the same thing. First Timothy two, five and six, for there is no one, excuse me, let's read it correctly. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Those are the statements of the New Testament. And if you listen to them, you gotta to agree to five things and you cannot reject Christ and have any hope of heaven. You cannot look at any other religious leader for salvation. There's only one. You cannot combine Christ and mix him with anything else. You're not free to make up your own religion. You can't save yourself. That's what they're saying. You come to God on his terms, not your own. These are utterly exclusive phrases and they mean what they say. There can't be a middle ground with Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus so exclusive? Now, remember, I wanted to, one of our sub goals of this series is to get us to think a little bit theologically. So I think theologically, there's three things going on that justify Jesus in his exclusive language. Step back and say, if he's this exclusive, why is he that way? First, I think Jesus has said that he's a litmus, he, I'm a litmus test. Jesus talks about his exclusivity and he makes the, the embrace of himself as the crucified and risen Messiah, as the litmus test of other religions. In other words, if you're talking with somebody about their religious beliefs, then bring up Jesus. Put Jesus in, lay him there at the fullness of what he teaches, and see how they respond. Because Jesus said in John 8, 19, they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In other words, the condition of knowing the father is you've got to know Jesus. He's the litmus test. What do you say about Jesus? Who is he? And Jesus is saying, there's no other pathway to get to know him. I'm the litmus test. You want to know what somebody truly believes, what do they believe about me? John 5, 23, Jesus said, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. He makes the honoring of himself the litmus test of honoring the father. You you, you can't honor the father if you're not honoring the son. So do they honor the son? Or John 6, 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If you won't come to Jesus as Savior, the one who's died for your sins, the one who rose from the dead, then all the other claims that you make, they haven't learned really anything about God because Jesus is the litmus test. What do you think about him? Second, theologically, Adam is our problem. If Jesus is the litmus test, then Adam is our problem. Paul in the New Testament, one of the most amazing passages which impacts our theology is Romans 5.12 where Paul sets up Adam as the head of the human race and all of us are under the condemnation that he received. Christ, though, he says, is the second Adam. Adam. He's the head of a new humanity. So that in Christ, we're all counted as righteous when we once were counted as sinners. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. There isn't another answer out there because there isn't another problem out there. We all have just one problem. There cannot be another savior out there because the only problem there is to save is that one. See, in Paul's mind, the problem of the entire human race, the problem of every religion in the world is the same. We are alienated from God because we're from Adam. And he uses five or four words in Romans 5 to describe our state of being, our condition apart from Christ. Here is God's estimation of humanity as, as sons and daughters of Adam. In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Romans 5, 8, while we were still what? Sinners. Romans 5.10, we were God's enemies. Here he describes us. We are powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. Not a very happy list. But those four words describe what we were by nature the moment we were born. Even my grandkids, they're going to be powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. Hard to believe, but they will be. To be powerless means you can't change Your basic nature. To be ungodly means that you have chosen to live as if God doesn't exist. To be a sinner means you constantly try and you constantly fail because you keep missing the mark. To be an enemy means we're hostile toward God. We're afraid of facing him someday. See, that's God's conclusion and no one is excluded from that conclusion. Search the entire globe, you're not gonna find anybody who, who's you know, not one of those four things, if not all of them. Not only are we sinners, but we're by nature, we're powerless and ungodly and enemies. It doesn't matter if you believe that or not, this is, what, this is true. It's not my personal opinion. You may say, well, I'm not really ungodly. I'm not as ungodly as you know, other people. I'm not God's enemy. I know of a lot of sinners, they're worse than me. What's just probably true. But the Bible just it washes away all of those objections. This is the truth about you. As you stand alone before God, apart from his grace, it leaves us without hope in and of ourselves. So you might ask, well, maybe I can reverse one or two of these, you might be able to try. You can't reverse all four of them. So we are utterly unable to save ourselves. We're hopeless. You see, Jesus comes to the world to be an answer to that problem. And there isn't any other problem out there that really matters. Paul's conception of how to think about being remedied from our human condition that's come from Adam and to be, it is really Christ as the only solution. So you draw one conclusion from all of this. God's love is not dependent on anything within us because there is nothing within us worth loving. You face nothing in you that forces God to love you. You're not naturally a loving person. You're not loving, you know, lovable. You aren't. I know you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But neither am I. There are people you can ask, but don't. Sin has infected our lives. It has so distorted and destroyed even the parts of us that we think are beautiful. Because sin, it uglifies everything it touches. Sin has made us so ugly that God finds nothing in us that forces him to love us. There is then no reason for God to love us. He loves you. He loves me because God is love. And he can't help but loving us, even if we're enemies. His love is both greater than our sin and in spite of our sin. He shouldn't love us, but he does. That is the wonder of the ages that God would love his sworn enemies. Amazing. Jesus as litmus test, Adam as our problem, theologically third, missions as our passion. You see, if salvation is really only in Christ, because he's the litmus test against against which we measure all faith, And if salvation is is really only in him because we share a common problem in Adam, so that solution has to come from Christ, then what should become our passion? What should be the, the mission of our lives? Paul spills it out in Romans 10, verse 14, how then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And he clarifies things in verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And I think that, that, that sequence that Paul says in, in these verses, it's, it's really a decisive word about our mission, about missions. Are there other ways for people to come to call upon the name of the Lord? If there are, we should, you know, whatever, they'll find their way. But if they're not, then we have to tell them. And he says, there's no other name, it's Jesus. They must hear about him. In order to hear about him, they have to have messengers and missionaries and preachers of the gospel. That's how faith is awakened. Salvation comes by faith. Therefore, we need to become passionate about sharing our faith. Therefore, we are passionate about crossing cultural barriers to share our faith, because if there are other ways to God, then missions is no big deal. They'll find their own way. So is Jesus really the only way to come to know God? I would say, yes, he is. The Bible presents Jesus not as one way among many religions. And that's why there's such a heavy mandate on the church to spread the gospel to all the peoples of the world because there is no salvation without knowing and embracing and believing Christ as the one who died for our sins and rose again. So if we believe in the uniqueness of Christ for salvation, that is not going to answer all the questions you have about salvation this morning. There's a lot of what God has not told us about the mysteries of life and death and eternity. We're going to wonder what happens if those who've never had an opportunity to believe, beyond the scope of this morning. What I'm saying this morning is we trust Christ as a Savior who is both loving and just, whose understanding is far beyond ours. And we acknowledge there's a lot we do not know. And it only makes sense that if a person who didn't want Christ as Savior, Why spend eternity with him if you don't like him now? So I have one final plea this morning. If we step back from what, to me, seems the obvious teaching of the Bible, that salvation is exclusively a work of God, because who can forgive their own sins? Who can grant eternal life? Who can clothe himself in the righteousness of God? Who can write his name down in heaven? No one. Somebody else has to do it for us. And only God is equal to that task. And in his infinite wisdom, he found a way by his marvelous grace. What we could not possibly do, God accomplishes himself. And this new is so radically good. The news is so radically good that in Christ, you and I, still struggling as we are, Stand before God entirely righteous. How can God do that? No one put the rescue operation more clearly than Isaiah. He says, surely he he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul describes the monumental decision that, that sends that all that plan in action in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So, that, I didn't read it the way it's written up there. God made him, sometimes you, you, never mind. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On his way to the cross to make infinite payment for sins, Jesus spoke these words to his father. John 17, and Jesus said this. He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who have, you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. From beginning to end, salvation is all of God. It's a work of God. It is by God, for God, to God. It's not our work. It's God's. And nothing we can do in our mind or in our attitude or in our actions can add anything to the provision that was so perfect. Where has the church ended up 2,000 years later after these texts where we now espouse heresy? Ten years ago, Catherine Jefferts Scorey the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church of America. She went to Venezuela, she preached from Acts chapter 16 where Paul cast the demon out of the girl in Macedonia. Her conclusion in that message was this, that when Paul cast the demon out of this young girl, it was because he was annoyed with her. She she obviously didn't do proper Bible study methods It's true he did wait a few days to cast out the demon, but she concluded that Paul was not very open-minded in dealing with this young girl. Here's what she said, but Paul is annoyed, perhaps for being put in his place, and he responds by depriving her of her gift of spiritual awareness. Paul can't abide something he won't see as beautiful or holy, so he tries to destroy it. It gets him thrown in prison. That's pretty much where he'd put himself by his own refusal to recognize that she too shares in God's nature just as much as he does, maybe more so. Well, wait a minute, she's possessed by a demon. He casts the demon out. And what's the accusation of him today? That, that he's not recognizing the nature of God and God's light in this little girl's life. Where is she headed in this message? We are not justified by our faith in Christ. We are justified by our respect for diversity. In her theology, we're to celebrate differences as a means of salvation. Salvation is found in our tolerance of alternative lifestyles. She says, the next time we feel the pain of of that change, perhaps instead of annoyance or angry resentment, we might pray for a new pair of glasses. When resentment about difference or change builds up within us, it's really an invitation to look inward inward for the wound that cries out for a healing dose of glory. We will find it in the strangeness of our neighbor. Celebrate that difference, for it's necessary for the healing of this world. And know that the wholeness we so crave lies in recognizing the glory of God's creative invitation. The more tolerant we are of diversity, the more God's creativity we will know. And then we will discover the glory of God. Is there great confusion over the nature of salvation today? I should say so. The modern survey seems to indicate that there's a growing number of evangelicals who are troubled by Jesus' claim to be the single source of salvation. And what does that say about us? It says how much of the world has come to live in us as we have tried to live in the world. We're allowing the push and the pull of our culture to define our beliefs and our commitments and our way of life. While at the same time we give lip service to Jesus. Perhaps the survey will serve as a wake up call as to how we have allowed the world to shape our thinking. Because over 200 years ago, an Anglican minister, Augustus Toplady, Clearly caught the reality of what the New Testament says about our salvation and I find it ironic to believe that we have to go back 200 years To understand biblical truth better than some do today with all of our resources But it is in this setting the top lady gets it so right and Scory so wrong If you hear nothing else this morning, listen to this. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flow be of of sin, the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. You've got to hide yourself in Christ. Not the labor of my hands. Not seeing the diversity and embracing it. Can fulfill the law's demands could my zeal no respite no I'm serving Christ with all my energy could my tears I'm repenting over those things that I've done wrong forever flow all for sin it could not atone it doesn't matter what you do thou must save and thou alone nothing in my hands I bring Simply to thy cross, I cling. Naked, I come to you for clothes. Helpless, I look to you for grace. Foul to the fountain fly. Wash me, savior, or I die. The heart of the gospel, it is all of Christ. And while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, hide me. Let me hide myself in thee. To say that Jesus is the only way very well may seem radical but it is good news because in Christ you and I still struggling stand before Christ totally righteous because it's, if it were up to us you will never have the assurance of your salvation. If you're just taking one of the paths that you want to take where's the assurance in that? Have you gotten far enough along one of those paths to know God? In Christ, though we struggle, we are entirely righteous. That is the news proclaimed by the New Testament. You can't have it both ways. An exclusive savior means we have a certain salvation. Wash me, savior, or I die. Father, thank you today. Our world, trying to be wise has become foolish. I pray through this we will cling to the truth of your word that because you claim to be the only way and we believe in you, therefore there is therefore now no condemnation. That we can rest in what you have done. That as we fail, we just come back to you over and over and over again. Because you've washed us and made us new. In Jesus' name, amen.